Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, and I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. I don't believe that any politician, even the the most uh, charismatic and compassionate president of the United States. A candid conversation about current events with the lieutenant governor from the state of Washington. What will eliminate racism from this country is a cultural and spiritual and social process of evolution um, or hopefully revolution. Randy Cohen sitting down with Cyrus Habib. The two talk about Cyrus's journey as he moves from politics to the priesthood. I wouldn't trade that for anything right now. I think that is what allowed me to uh, travel the road from Braille to Yale. So we're so happy uh, to be joined today by uh, Cyrus Habib, the Lieutenant Governor of uh, Washington. Um, can I can I call you uh, Cyrus, or do they do they call you Lou? Is that with the when you're the Lieutenant? Uh, no, no. Go ahead. They they call me um, Lieutenant Governor, or the the actual um, the, the protocol is actually to call people Governor, mm-hmm. even though it's Lieutenant Governor. Uh, I've never liked that, mm-hmm. uh, and then. In the Senate, because I'm president of the Senate, they'll call me Mr. President. But mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, you and I are uh, friends now. Exactly. So go ahead and I, I also saw I saw the the uh, the hashtag WaltGov, and it took me a moment to put it together. Oh, I see. Washington Lieutenant Governor makes uh, yeah. Uh, so we we can call you Walt. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I just think of the cop shows where you know they'll sometimes call the lieutenant, uh, you know, in the in LT. Lou, and uh, I'm like, okay, you know, yeah. you could be Lou, or or you know that that weird thing where somebody will be like the um the Attorney General or the Postmaster General, and they'll call them General, and you're like, no, yeah. <laughs> It doesn't make sense. I know. Yeah. That's not that's not that use of general. Exactly. Well, so let's talk about politics. Uh, so so how were you able to come so far so young? You're still in your 30s, right? I am still in my 30s. Yeah. Um, how was I able to come? Well, it was, um, you know, politics is all about timing. And uh, I, uh, you know, I, I graduated law school in 2009. I came back to Washington state started practicing law and, you know, I made a decision that, um, was probably thought of as kind of odd by my friends and my, my kind of my peer group, which was that I decided to live on the East side of Lake Washington, where, which is where the Microsoft suburbs are. It's where Microsoft campus is. Um, and, uh, rather than in Seattle itself. And, and I'd grown up over there. My parents, lived over there. Um, and so I got a place in downtown Bellevue, which was, and you know, um, you know, it's interesting. It was 10 years ago, Bellevue would be considered kind of, um, center, right. Mm -hmm. Um, it was traditionally, uh, I think it is still where the state Republican party, um, headquarters is located. Um, it was the, the center of the Republican party in the state, um, and it had moved a little bit to the left. Um, by the time I moved back, it had democratic legislators, but it had a kind of a mix of, of democratic and Republican legislators. Um, to give you some sense of how far that's come, there were black lives matter, um, 
protests there this past Sunday in downtown Bellevue. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's a it's a part of our region that has seen really uh, drastic um, political shifts um, because of Microsoft and Google, which has a campus over there, and other tech companies recruiting young and diverse people from all over the world to come and uh, work there and live there. And the the school districts there are the best in the state. And so uh, people, you know, like to live in, you know, buy buy homes and live in that area. So, um, so what happened was when I moved back there, it was still, you know, kind of center right. And there was not a bench of Democrats you know, ready to kind of run for, for political office. Um, you know, there was this kind of sense that you either had to be a soccer mom or a Microsoft dad, um, to be uh, a legislator. Well, so I started living there right around when, you know, uh, a number of kind of high rise, um, apartments and condos had been built. And so the demographic mix was changing, was becoming younger, more diverse, more educated, and, um, and so then in 2012, and I, and I got active in the community specifically over there. So mm-hmm. I didn't do a whole bunch of um, civic volunteering in Seattle. I did a lot of it you know, over there. I joined the Rotary Club in Bellevue. I got on the board of the Bellevue College Foundation, uh, on the board of the Bellevue Downtown Association, all those kinds of things. And so when a, um, a legislator... Uh, from that, uh, from the district I lived in, announced her retirement in 2012. Um, I was, I'd been thinking about, you know, maybe running for office one day. I didn't know how quickly it would be, but when that came, when that looked like it was going to be available, and the rumors were swirling that she was not going to run again, um, I started taking it more seriously. And unlike in Seattle, where I would have had to run against five or six other serious Democrats, some of whom would have spent years positioning themselves, you know, over there on the Democratic side, it was a, you know, it was pretty wide open for me. And then the, the, the real race came down to me versus a Republican city council member from Redmond, which is where Microsoft's headquarters. So, um, so, you know, in 2012 was a, you know, Obama reelection year, um, it was a year where there was, you know, marriage equality on the ballot and pot legalization on the ballot. And so there was a huge turnout in our state, in our district. And that, that district had moved, um, you know, kind of gradually to the left without people really noticing it. And so it just worked out. It, mm-hmm. it was, it was great timing. Then in 2014, um, the incumbent state Senate. So I was in the state house then in 2012. And then in, in 2014, the state senator from that district, who was Senate Majority Leader, in fact, um, suddenly announced he wasn't going to run for re-election. And so um, it was there were two House members in that district, and um, the other one was more senior, but he was the uh, appropriations chair in the House and didn't want to leave the House. And so, mm-hmm. um, again, it was just kind of perfect timing. I was the House member who wanted to, the Senate seat. And, uh, and so I ran for it and won the Senate seat. Then um, I uh, got to know the Senate and the Lieutenant Governor is the president of the Senate. And again, rumors started to, to, to kind of swirl that, that maybe Brad Owen, who was the incumbent Lieutenant Governor, might not run for reelection. 
And I got to know more about the office of the lieutenant governor, um, the work that, that the lieutenant governor does, not just in the Senate, but the rest of the time. And people thought it was kind of an odd decision um, because, you know, people kind of thought, well, you're a lawyer. Why don't you wait and run for attorney general? And this kind of thing. And I, you know, I'm, I, uh, I practice law, but I'm not that interested in being attorney general. It's just not, those aren't the issues that I'm, I'm more interested in creating um, than in litigating. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, so then I ran for Lieutenant governor and that, in that case, I didn't have a wide open field. I had a quite crowded field. So you weren't on a ticket um, there. You, you were right. No, no, we're one of the, we're one of the 18 States where you don't run on a Mm -hmm. ticket. So, um, so, so that was, you know, that was a pretty tough race. Um, I was running against two other state senators who were, uh, far more senior than I, um, I was, uh, for most of the race, although he dropped out of the race, also the speaker pro tem of the house was in the race. Um, and so it was a crowded field. And what that meant for me was that, you know, for the first time, we were going to test the question of whether someone who is Iranian American with, you know, a, a Middle Eastern name um, and someone who's blind, who wears sunglasses and, you know, is uh, people either know he's blind and might have an issue with that or, or kind of wonder whether I could do the job or don't know why I'm blind and are wondering why I'm wearing sunglasses. You know, there were all those kinds of concerns and, and questions in my mind and, you know, in the previous elections that I had, um, I wasn't running against other Democrats. So in my paranoid mind later, I, looking back, I said, well, you know, maybe people have these concerns, but they're voting for me because they're so partisan and they like, they want the Democrat and they don't even know, you know, and they, they're just, you know, and so I had this concern. What if when they're given the choice for multiple Democrats mm-hmm. and their choices are, Karen Frazier and Steve Hobbs and then Cyrus Habib, you know, and, and, you know, the other two are white, the other two are not blind, you know, that when given those choices that, you know, the democratic voter or kind of, um, independent Democrat or something, you know, might, um, might just go with the person they think looks more like a traditional politician. And so, um, so, so for all those reasons, it kind of felt like, you know, it was, it, you know, it was, it was a tough race. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, but we worked really, really hard. I had an amazing campaign manager and we, um, we just, we did, we, we fought everywhere on every front, uh, for every endorsement, um, and, uh, fundraise like crazy. What, uh, you know, I got a lot of support from the Iranian American community, not just in our state, but around the country, um, got a lot of support from teachers and, and others here in the state. And, and so was able to win the primary and then, um, you know, was, was matched with a, um, Republican. And that was another thing. We're, we're one of the States where we have a top two primary. So we don't, you know, so, so, so it was possible that I would end up with another right. Democrat, which happened that same year to Kamala Harris in California, mm-hmm. uh, for example. And so, um, so I was also very intent on making it through the primary, but making it through the primary with a Republican, because I worried if I make it through with another Democrat, then again, you know, can I really count on getting Republican votes 
um, to win the general, given that I am, you know, Middle Eastern American and ran kind of as, you know, I ran as the progressive mm -hmm. in the primary. So, um, so, but, um, but it worked out, yeah. you know, I made it through with a Republican. He was a pretty, um, extreme, you know, tea party mm -hmm. style Republican. And, um, so, so it, it worked out. That's, and so that, that's how I got to be, uh, Lieutenant governor at age 35. It became much more relevant vis-a-vis -vis the governor's office, um, it really due to the relationship that I have with Governor Inslee and that we have at the staff level, so that when he was out of state for much of last year campaigning for president, um, I wasn't just acting governor, but we were able to um, actually substantively partner so that, for example, um, for the first time, we had a um, shared staff member working on international relations for both the governor and for me. That had never happened before because as independent <laughs> office holders, we'd never... Um, you know, th these, these two offices, uh, for 120 years had never, um, before been, been tied together. Um, and so, so I'm really proud of that. We, uh, introduced a number of pieces of legislation, uh, all of which passed the legislature. So, and, and then, and then politically, um, you know, to, to be able to, uh, as Lieutenant Governor of Washington, it, it would have been unheard of for the Lieutenant Governor of Washington to be on, you know, Christian Amanpour's show or, um, you know, uh, uh, interviews um, with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal or, you know, mm -hmm. Ezra Klein or whatever, you know, Preet Bahara and these kind of things. And so, mm -hmm. you know, all of that means that, uh, and, or, you know, now to be a member of the, the DNC, um, you know, to, to be able to chair the Western states effort for Pete Buttigieg, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, I think we did a really good job of raising the profile of the office, showing that the Lieutenant governor, you know, can make a huge difference in the Senate and, and in the executive branch as well. The, um, you, you know, you mentioned Governor Inslee. He's somebody, you know, I've been super impressed by in recent years. Uh, first of all, just, you know, I really believe that that climate change is a um, you know is an existential crisis. Is it you know sometimes I'll joke with my uh, friends who are very politically conservative. And I'll be like like I'll make you a trade. You know you list your like five biggest issues, and uh, when they put me in charge, you can have those if we can actually fight climate change successfully. Like it, it just matters so much more than so many other things that I also care a lot about. But I just think uh, of the magnitude, and yet uh, what you see is lots of politicians who would not along with that statement. They would say, sure, yeah, absolutely, most important issue. Um, they act like it's just one thing on the roster, whereas Governor Inslee's, you know, sort of really stepped up and focused his uh, presidential campaign and rhetoric on it, on it being, um, being the number one thing. And then, of course, uh, you know, as the pandemic hit, it, you know, it seemed like he really was uh, just super early and sharp. And, and maybe you deserve a lot of credit here, too. I don't know your whole, the whole administration uh, on, on, on fast action to try to uh, nip it in the bud. So really, I guess what I'm saying is, what, what's Jay Inslee really like? Uh, what's Jay Inslee really like? Um, he's, he is exactly the way that he comes across, um, on camera. I, I've never thought about it in that way, but as you're asking the question, um, he, um, is, at least, at least with me, you know, and at least with other politicians, mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. that's how, 
uh, you know, and I, and I know, you know, I've got, I've gotten to know his, his family a bit, you know, um, and, um, and, and I, I just, you know, the way he is, is, you know, he is a, um, uh, warm and friendly and, um, engaging and charismatic person. Um, he, uh, is a big believer in science. Um, and so whether it, you know, so as you mentioned, whether it's on climate or on, uh, COVID, he looks to what is the science telling us? Um, and there's a, there's a, you know, there's a kind of a humility to that of saying, you know, um, you know, I, I never hear Governor Inslee say, I have, I, I, this is what I want to do because it's what it's, it's, you know, it's what I think is right. He always couches it in, mm-hmm. this is what we have been told. This is what the experts say. And I've read the research and I've read the reports and this is, you know, the, the right thing. And, and so, so I think that's, um, that's given him a great deal of credibility. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, he also has a folksiness to him, um, that allows him, even though, you know, climate is often thought of as, you know, an issue of the coastal elite or the, even you might mm-hmm. say the white coastal elite, um, you know, but he has a kind of, a folksiness. I think it's in part, you know, um, he represented, he's actually represented two different parts of the state in Congress. It's interesting. Um, he represented the, uh, East side of the state, which is rural. Um, you know, mm-hmm. for your, for your, uh, East coast listeners, it's the, up, up the, the New York, part. you know, the, the, the part, the part that's basically Idaho. You're right. It, it's yeah. He didn't, he didn't, he wasn't all the way to the East of the state, but he was kind of the, the, the just East of the mountains. Um, you know, but mm-hmm. rural, um, agricultural, and he, rep- you know, he got elected there. Um, he lost his seat in the big 94 uh, uh, contract uh, with America wave election. Um, he lost his, his seat there, but then he, um, he actually moved to take a job in the Clinton administration. Uh, he moved to the west side of the state and then ran for Congress and represented the west side of the state um, uh, for 12 years, uh, for 14 years. And so, you know, I think because he had represented both sides in Congress, both sides of the mountains, um, he has a, 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 a folksiness and an appeal that allows him to talk about issues that are, uh, you know, cerebral and, um, you know, can sometimes be polarizing along, uh, uh class lines, et cetera, in a way that is accessible, I think, uh, to everyone. Mm. The, uh, yeah, you know when and I, I'm not when paid I to say you, that. I don't, you know, like you said, we run separately. Exactly. Well, so I don't. This I don't, is the key. Be- yeah. Because you're leaving, you know, you can you can say anything. Plus, nobody listens to this podcast, so you know you can slag away uh, anybody the, you want to. If I were running for re-election, <laughs> they'd find it. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, but I. But but you know, but even if I were running for re-election, you know, I'm not. I'm not on his payroll. So so I would, you know, mm-hmm. I'd tell you the the honest to god truth, and and that's, um, you know, that's that's who he is. <laughs> 
I told David when we started this podcast, I said, my goal is to interview people who are really interesting um, and not really about blindness. Now, early on, a lot of the people we, we spoke to, the, the interviews were kind of blindness focused. We talked to people connected to blindness organizations and so forth. But it's, it's thrilling to talk to you who I could just talk to, you know, all day long. And, uh, and the fact that we're both blind wouldn't, wouldn't even have to come up. But just in right. case we have some listeners who actually expect to hear something about blindness, you want to share anything either, uh, something about um, how blindness has, has uh, affected you as you've gone through either the political part or your, or your decision to head towards the priesthood or anything like that. Or if you want to go a different direction, tell us some tics, tips and tricks and technologies uh, that you use to be as effective as you are uh, despite lo- sight loss or, or any, anything related to that just so we can check the box, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's, it's – um... No, it, it's it's important. I mean, I I think um, there's a couple things I could say about that. One is that um, you know I became blind as a kid due to cancer, um, and you know the way that I was I was very fortunate because uh, here we are, this small Iranian American family living in Baltimore County, and um, my young parents are faced with this devastating news that their son has cancer um, first in the left eye as a newborn and then in the right eye and became blind at age eight years old. And they're living there, no extended family around. Um, And yet they um, somehow, somehow had this deep conviction that um, they could not allow their fear uh, to translate into my fear, um, that they wanted me to uh, believe in my own potential fully, and that they were willing. And my mom went to law school and 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 taught herself, and then taught me how to be an advocate. Um, and there's something so powerful about that, um, but. And, and, and so this is where I think it's my – I've grown and I think matured in how I view this is that um, I wouldn't trade that for anything right now. Mm-hmm. I think that is what allowed me to uh, travel the road from Braille to Yale mm-hmm. um, that I talk about. But um, taken to an extreme, that mentality of projecting strength and capability, ability, you know, uh, uh, power, um, all of that taken to an extreme, it can, um, leave no room for, uh, and I will say in, you know, from my perspective, it leaves no room for God. Mm-hmm. Um, but you might also say leaves no room to recognize one's own fragility, one's own um, status as a contingent being, contingent on the world, contingent if you if you're a believer, contingent on God, and what that meant was that later in life, when I got when I when I when I got older, um, and I confronted things like my father's diagnosis, like my own illness, um, you know, like a, a really um, devastating political situation, like. COVID-19, whatever, you know, when facing these things, um, the, the training and the instinct has become, you know, well, I'll just 
you know, litigate my way through it, or I will um, push and fight and battle. And, you know, and you see this a lot in political rhetoric, you know, how much do you see people use this language? And in fact, there was a, I think uh, Ezra Klein um, uh, pointed this out. I think he did a piece on it a couple of years ago. Uh, no, it was last year. It was during the, the, the beginning of the primary season. And he pointed out how it was the women candidates who used the words fight, battle, these kinds of, like, there was a whole, you did a whole flow chart of words. Um, and, and I think that what that's probably about is that, you know, like me as a kid who was blind, I think girls, and then as they, as they grow older and become women have had to, um, especially if they're the, if they're the kind of people who go on to become politicians, U S senators, et cetera, they have had to project power and strength because what's the assumption Mm -hmm. about a woman? What's the assumption about a person with a disability? Right. And so you want to battle and you want to combat, you want to combat, you know, all those assumptions. And so the language that you use is, is much more militant. And, you know, than if you are say Joe Biden Mm -hmm. or whatever, where you may have the luxury of never having had anyone question your ability to battle or to fight or, or whatever. But here's the thing is that, that I know this, Joe Biden knows this, and, and others learn this. Everyone learns this eventually, is that you come, you, you, you encounter things that you can't defeat that mm-hmm. way. And this relates kind of to our point about what are the things that you can do in politics, even if the political system was more functional than it is now, and what are the things that you can't do that way. And it's the same thing in one's life. There are things that you can, um, your bank account may be big enough that you can solve. And there's some things, you know, like we lost uh, the great Paul Allen Mm -hmm. here, co-founder of Microsoft, and no amount of money. Steve Jobs, no amount of money um, could help them. So that's, so, so then confronting my own vulnerability, my own fragility, recognizing that we are all born weak, we all die weak, and we, and we spend every living moment uh, seemingly in between trying to convince ourselves and others that we are not. Um, that's been a realization that I've come to. Um, and it's changed the way I think that I view blindness which is that um, I went from feeling that blindness was um, the you know something to be completely re- suppressed in myself the, I, the very notion of that um, to an idea to, to the idea that um, it's it's okay to to acknowledge and in fact perhaps to you know even to grieve the loss of eyesight mm-hmm. that, you know, rather than either saying, I'm going to pretend it's, it's, it's not the case or to go to the other extreme and to say, you know what? Um, blindness is who I am. Um, I have blind pride or, mm-hmm. or whatever, right? Like rather than do either of those things, just say, you know what? I'm not defined by this. And it is something that happened, but it's also, it, it, it's not nothing, mm-hmm. you know, it's not irrelevant. It is, it's, a, it's a profound sadness to not be able, you know, for you to not be able to uh, gaze upon a chi- your child. Exactly. You know, that, that's a profound sadness. We don't need to, um, you know, we, we don't need to kind of um, 
elide that fact um, in order to recognize our own full dignity um, as human beings. And, and, and so that's been a, a real evolution in my thinking um, over, over these years. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I agree with that. And I think, you know, one of the things, may, you know, that's maybe a small, uh, a small compensation for, for having a, a sort of um, easy to recognize disability like blindness or being in a wheelchair or whatever is, is that people tend to be very open about talking about their challenges, you know, because they know, and, and, uh, and you, you kind of quickly discover like, you know, everybody's got something, you know, everybody has, has things they yep. have to deal with. And, uh, you know, many people are fortunate enough that they don't have an individual thing that's as difficult to deal with as blindness, but a, uh, many people absolutely do all the time. I talk to people and they talk about an issue that they have in their lives. And I think, yeah, I don't think I, you know, take that one on, you know, if I, if it would enable me to see, and then B, of course, there's people who might not have any one thing, but they may have a, uh, a, a pile of things. Anytime I have any physical illness, I'm, uh, my immediate reaction is no, that's not fair. I'm blind. I, I gave it the office, right? Like I've got my big negative thing. I don't, I don't, I shouldn't have anyone, anyone, anyone who lives long enough, anyone who lives long enough will become, yeah, I, I, exactly. Or will become deaf or will become right. right. Like anyone who lives long enough will develop a disability. Um, and you know, but, but, but you're right. There's also all the invisible, um, wounds. They, um, so, so, you know, you've mentioned that you're leaving politics. Obviously it's, it's, uh, much talked about your decision to, uh, uh, pursue, uh, to pursue a vocation in the priesthood. Um, so this is the part where you tell me about that and then I, I try to talk you out of it. Oh, um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I come at this from the perspective of a believer. And so to me, this is never done as a monologue. It's always done as a dialogue. So there's always also what is God calling me towards? What am I being asked to do? So the, the very notion of, you know, so, so you can't tune an instrument in, in isolation, you know, you, you, you know, so this idea of I, I'm trying to tune my life to the key of God, you know, to the key of, and that doesn't mean, you know, and, and so most people who do that don't, then become a priest, right? It doesn't, that doesn't mean tune your, tune your, tune your life to the key of God doesn't, does not mean become a priest or become a nun. It, it, but it might mean become a politician. Um, so, so that's, that's a personal discernment of things. And what I will say in response is I have come to believe from having been in politics these eight years and, and seen it at all levels, I have come to believe that that's not the only way and in fact may not for many of these issues even be the most important way. So let me give you an example. As we record this, we are, you know, uh, eight days uh, uh, past, no, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, uh, nine days past the murder of George Floyd. George you know, Floyd. We're, we're six days into the, um, the, 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 the protests and civil unrest and response. So, so here we are, we're, we're thinking about these things very um, intensively. And I will say to you, there are structures that perpetuate racism and that perpetuate the murder of black people that exist in government. And politicians are the correct actors. They are, in fact, the most important actors in dismantling those structures. That is definitely the case, whether it comes to police unions, whether it comes to um, uh, 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 the underlying, uh, 
um, economic realities of privilege that um, you know can lead to you know such as uh, the history of redlining and now uh, housing and education issues. All of those are um, uh, issues, uh, legislative and policy issues. But I don't believe that any politician, even the the most um, uh, charismatic and compassionate president of the United States, could eliminate racism from this country. What will eliminate racism from this country is a cultural and spiritual and social process of evolution um, or hopefully revolution. You know, the, the idea, not uh-huh. political, right? Not political, but, but social, cultural, and spiritual. So we need to change our hearts. Um, because the question is, you know, Amy Cooper, the, the fact that she could make life difficult for a black person that is a matter that that you can legislate. That's true. You can you can you can dismantle those structures. But the desire to do that, the desire to say something like that, that's that's not something you can legislate. And so what I would say is that um, the public seems to want uh, politicians to be cultural, spiritual, and social change makers, when in fact, politicians are downstream from all of that. Politicians in this country are we're, we're quite easy to figure out. We will follow the cultural, social demands of our constituents. The constituents need to want it. They need to demand it. And in order to get them to want and to demand it, we need to have we need to, we we need to change it. And that's what Dr. King understood so well. So, so so you're 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 running right into the into the teeth of of, of my uh, the, the my my candidate for the greatest thing ever said, which I should memorize the exact wording of. If I weren't blind, I would I would look it up uh, while while we're talking. But but uh, it's, uh, you may know the quote from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and he said something along the lines of it that you know the great conservative truth is that it's culture, not law, that really matters uh, for how we treat each other and so forth. But the great liberal truth is that law can uh, influence that culture. It does. And, and, it, and it, shape it, that, right? it does. There's no question. I'm not, you know, it's not, you know, the ADA has done so much, Mm -hmm. not only to, um, to, you know, to change lived reality in the form of legal enforcement of the law that has meant jobs and, and educational and other opportunities for people with disabilities, but it also then changes, uh, it does, it, it, it can have, and it, it has had because there's downstream effects from that that can have a cultural ramification. There's no question the two do um, work in tandem, but ultimately, um, you know, my view is that um, when you run into a limitation in one arena, it may be time to look at the other arena, right? And the two mm-hmm. should be working in it. So, in other words. LBJ was great at doing LBJ-like things. LBJ was not great at doing MLK-like things. And I don't know whether MLK would have been, but I I suspect he probably wouldn't have been great at doing LBJ-like things. So you need all 
six of those letters, you know what I mean? And you need them to be arranged in the right, you know, um, you know, in the right Scrabble order. Everyone needs to be in the right square. And so, the, the, you know, you need the cultural change making, you need the, the um, uh, astute lawmaking, and those need to work um, together at the right time and in the right ways. And my view is that at the moment, the, the, the problem with Moynihan's, um, uh, with, the, with the execution of Moynihan's liberal vision is that the cultural breakdown that we have has made it virtually impossible to bring about the lawmaking that would then bring about the cultural change. But I won't um, deny this is how we we economists think. If you can if you can help a million people, it's better than helping a thousand. And if you can help a thousand, it's better than helping ten. I recognize that uh, a lot of mischief can be done under that flag. And you could say, oh, good of the many over the good. Oh, we're gonna the ends justify the means. So so believe me, I'm aware that 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 doesn't just automatically answer every question to say that we have to think about quantity and scalability. It absolutely leads into more thorny questions. So, so And I'll give you and I'll give you I'll give you I'll give you, I'll give you an even but, more. But I, but I won't deny, but I won't deny the fundamental truth that I of my life, which is yes, like I just um, created an online my, my online course that I just created for Harvard Business School just launched. And I'm hoping that several thousand people a year, hopefully by the time it's run its course, you know, 30,000, 50,000 people will have taken that course. Now, is that going to be more value added than the 200 people a year that I teach uh, face to well, hopefully face to face when this pandemic is over? Um, you know, I don't know. Obviously, you can do a lot of good uh, 200 at a time, you know, or whatever, one at a time uh, as well. And I do tons of that kind of work, but I do, but I am excited about the scalability as well. And um, so, so I'm just saying, you know, I'm not backing away from that. I'm recognizing the danger inherent in these scalability concerns and the people saying, hey, Hey, I put a penny in the pocket of a billion people, and so I'm more valuable than the greatest martyr because you know you multiply it out. Uh, so you know, I recognizing the problems, I do still say you know there's a thing the utilitarian uh, philosophers sometimes jokingly say about themselves: shut up and multiply. You know, right. and uh, and I have a little in me. But but let me but let me let me say this. I mean, I and 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 look, there is absolutely something. You know, I commend that because the desire to do to do good for more people is hugely important. And, and it's, you know, and it, and it's, it comes absolutely from the right place and it is the right thing to do in many instances, but here's the thing, but we need is what we need all different types of, of, of witness and of vocation. But, you know, let me, let me give you, um, I think the most powerful example, which is that around 2000 years ago, a Palestinian Jew, um, uh, died. Uh, was executed by the state, and before he was executed, we are told that he had dinner with his friends and asked them to participate in a certain what would what we would call a ritual, or, and 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 to do that in memory of him. Now, mm-hmm. either you believe that. That was that was the son of God, and mm-hmm. um, in which case I think you know um, it'd be very hard to if you have that belief, um, mm-hmm. then then we can speak in those terms. But I, I like to actually speak in terms that don't require that belief. Um, yeah, let's say I'm a skeptic. So yeah, so I think uh, yeah. So if so, if you're a skeptic, here's the thing: you explain to me from the perspective of 
um, an economist and of, of developing scalable solutions um, and, a, and a quantitative approach. You explain to me how it is that around the world for 2,000 years now, notwithstanding churches that are closed for COVID, right now, <laughs> right now as we speak, or in 2019, let's say, pre-COVID, um, every day, hundreds of millions of people every day are participating in the ritual that he shared with his 11 friends that day. And that there are hundreds of millions, if not billions of replicates uh, of, 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 of his body in its executed form that are, that decorate homes and buildings all over the world. What, what is it about, was it something entrepreneurial about that Palestinian Jew? Because again, view it from the perspective mm-hmm. of the don't, of the skeptic. don't, don't, let's take grace yeah. out of it. Let's take providence out of it. Let's right. take the Holy Spirit out of it. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, obviously it could be because God wanted uh, right. everybody to, let's just view it with utter view of a skeptic. How yeah. could it, there's nothing and, and, but you don't even need, you know, and so that I think is the most powerful example of how witness, because remember, this is a person who, to you know, whether again, whether you believe it or you think it's just the way the story was told and it's not true, but the, you know, he didn't go around waving a wand and healing thousands of people. He had individual encounters. Again, whether you believe it or it's the way that the evangelists wanted you to believe it uh, when they wrote it down. That, that it was not about big scale things. It was about touching the eyes of a blind man um, mm-hmm. with his saliva, you know? I mean, it's this, it's this intimate, you know, uh, to the point of being kind of gross, right? It's got an intimate thing <laughs> that, that is, but it's, it's the most intimate kind of thing. Um, you know, um, so, it, so the very logic of it um, is not quantitative, and yet there's never been a movement in world history anywhere as global in reach as Christianity. And so, so that's one. Two is you look at George Floyd, a person Mm -hmm. who never knew what his life would mean to the world. Mm -hmm. Um, A person who is, you know, was not famous, um, was not well-known in any regard. Um, And yet will likely have done more uh, for the cause of anti-racism than any number of members of Congress, um, you know, may, you know, may, may do more than anyone has done since, um, you know, uh, Dirksen and, uh, LBJ, uh, got the civil rights act in 1964 passed. Possibly we will see, mm-hmm. you know, so by the way, by the way, you've been very consistently naming martyrs as the people with this uh, impact. I, I, I you know, t- just uh, don't want you heading in that direction. No, 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 I'm not heading in. No, no, no. no. <laughs> you got, you got Jesus. You got the Salvatoran martyrs. You got the the European martyrs. You got George Floyd. It, 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 it certainly is true that laying down your life for a cause is is definitely a way to have. There is um, no greater love. There is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. Right. So that's that's right. Now that being said, a hundred million people are going to die this year. 
you know, and not uh, be remembered forever in, in, in the same way, you know, and, and their sacrifices, you know, won't be, um, you know, I mean, they'll be honored, of course, by the people who know them and love them, but but won't have that, uh, you know, to use the term of the moment, viral, uh, uh, you know, impact. But I, uh, but, but you, but I do not deny your point, which is it's absolutely possible to do acts that feel very individual and that end up, um, you know, uh, touching people's hearts and, and having an impact uh, uh, far behind. David's signaling me that um, your staff is saying you have to go back to uh, rescuing civilization from collapse. To be continued. I, I look forward. I look forward to um, to continuing the conversation. All right. Well, Cyrus, thank you so much. This has been fascinating, and I'm really excited to do it again. So uh, we'll we'll reach out. Maybe we'll get you right after your your term ends, but before they uh, the Jesuits have you uh, sweeping floors and and so forth, we'll get you we'll get you uh, in there for for another uh, podcast. This has been a delight. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown.